Well, it's a little bit pedantic Reading journals like The Lancet Up to date and those medical reviews But here we're more about the antics Than being caught up in semantics So listen here for your pediatric news Welcome to Pedantic. I'm Sumit. Today is part two in our vaccine series. I'm joined by Dodi Meyer, uh, talking about vaccine equity, and she's the clinical lead for the NYP Division of Community Health and leading efforts on vaccine equity. So Dodi, thank you so much for joining today. Um, looking forward to hearing your perspectives on vaccine equity around the COVID vaccine. So my first question is, what are some of the challenges that you've experienced um, in achieving equity in vaccine distribution for the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine? Well, thank you first for having me. It's a pleasure to be able to be here in your podcast. Um, I think that the, one of the biggest challenges has been access, access, and access. And uh, when we're talking about access, it's not only uh, location and geography of the vaccine sites, but really addressing the language barrier, health literacy issues, uh, and the digital divide. Uh, and lastly, I would say also the 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 system in which vaccine rollout has been done, which is by mostly appointments instead of walk-ins. Uh, so when I'm talking about languages, obviously all the information has to be in all the languages spoken by people in the community attending that site. Health literacy, the signage, and all the fact sheets and vaccine information should be done at a fifth grade reading level. The digital divide has been one of the biggest barriers uh, launching um, an online system when you're trying to target people that have no uh, internet access or limited minutes available in their iPhone or and have low computer literacy, it's almost impossible to do. So the, the biggest barrier we face in the first rollout of the face of the vaccines was when we were trying to vaccinate the senior population in our community, which is mostly a Latino population, was these seniors don't have the computer literacy and also a lot of them didn't have access to mobile devices. So uh, launching something digitally becomes a, a major barrier. And then uh, the other one has been transportation. It's clear now when we look at patterns of people being vaccinated and what sites they go to, they go to the ones that are closest to their homes. So if you have pockets in the city that have um, a large population of people who have hesitancy or are struggling with any of these issues, if you add that they then have to use public transportation at a time when people are afraid of using public transportation to access a vaccine site, that has been a, a, a major challenge. Uh, and the last challenge is the whole issue of trust and misinformation and vaccine hesitancy. We're seeing it now. Um, it's very clear that the misinformation is rampant, and it's clear that providing vaccine education with facts so people can make an informed decision is now what our focus is, given that supply is there. 
and barriers of access have diminished. Mm. We've already alluded to some of the potential solutions for how to address those challenges, but what strategies have you seen um, to be effective in achieving vaccine equity so far? I think we have to do a multi-pronged strategy, and it's what we tried to do at NYP at the Columbia campus with the uh, launching of the armory site. Um, as you know, going through the different things, obviously the armory was a, a, a trusted site that's geographically centrally located within a population that's mostly minority Latino. Um, so ease of transportation in a known site is very important. I, I can't stress this enough. We have the example of another site that opened at Yeshiva University, which is also very centrally located in the community, but the Latino community doesn't know about it, so won't go. They won't, and it's underutilized. So it's not only that the site has to be geographically centrally located, it has to be recognized as a site that community members go to on a regular basis. The other thing, obviously, is we we really worked hard on the language and the health literacy issue with signage and having uh, mostly bilingual people uh, being navigators of the site once people arrived. Um, one of the things that we did to address the digital divide is uh, create, a, over time, we created what's called a, a syllable, using syllable bot technology for a link for direct scheduling. So we identified uh, over 100 community partners, leaders, and senior centers, faith-based organizations that could have this link. And they are trusted members of their community, and they would uh, reach out to their members or community members at large, and they themselves be able to schedule directly into the armory. This way, it avoided people to have to go to uh, different portals to try to uh, access availability first and then being able to schedule. And that's been tremendously successful. Some of our CBO partners park themselves in food pantry lines and, and schedule people directly when they were receiving food. Some did it, you know, uh, during religious services or after that. Um, senior centers got together, used this link, and also then rented buses. Um, obviously, there was an issue with social distancing then, but allowing the seniors to come by bus from their own senior center to get vaccinated. So this was very important. We also created a call center that in our case had to be in Spanish, uh, but instead of us running the call center to be able to schedule and answer basic questions about vaccinations, uh, we did a subcontract with a trusted community partner agency, Northern Manhattan Improvement Corporation, and they hired community members and trained them in answering this call center. And they could handle like 500 calls a day. So community members are comfortable calling a CBO and these members themselves were able to vaccinate. So it's really a multi-pronged approach. Uh, the other thing that we did is we created like a bureau of speakers, as to say, for, uh, recruiting clinicians across the campus, mostly doctors and nurses who want to do vaccine education. We worked with infection prevention and control and created a slide deck that we shared across campuses with Cornell and Columbia in Spanish and English. Uh, we have it in French Creole. Um, so we, and this is a diverse group of physicians, we established tenets, basic tenets for these education talks for them to be interactive, to allow for questions, to use motivational interviewing. 
and really uh, gave now over 100 talks to different agencies like New York Public Library, the wide different churches, and reached out to more than 11,000 people. And we're still the talks are being given to, to address issues concerning vaccine hesitancy. And what was interesting about this is that the communities themselves asked for particular diversity representation in the talks. So they want a, a woman physician of color or a man physician of color, or they want Spanish, they want English, they want Haitian Creole. They want the physicians and the clinicians who talk to their constituents to represent the group that um, they're addressing. So I think those are some of the, or most of the things that we tried to do in order to achieve vaccine equity. Um, and there's one more thing. <laughs> is uh, collecting the data. So it's very challenging to see whether we are addressing vaccine equity or not if we don't collect race and ethnicity of the patient population. Understanding obviously that race is a social construct, we still need to collect that data following federal guidelines because that's how resources are allocated in this country. So we realized that in the beginning that data wasn't being collected for reasons that go beyond this conversation, but obviously a lot of it has to do with discomfort. And then we did a hard stop in registration and training through videos and uh, slides to the registration staff at our vaccine sites of the importance of collecting vaccine um, race and ethnicity data. So uh, collecting this data is crucial to monitor our success in achieving vaccine equity. That's also exciting to hear. I think I'm most excited about the community partner relationship um, that you that you um, spoke about. You know, given, given that we're unable to actually go into the community with these vaccines, I think probably because of the the nature of how it had to be stored and how it had to be administered, and not wanting to waste too much, um, really uh, tapping into the resources of the community partners um, and their networks of, of trust that they've built with their for the communities um, sounds like something that should be, you know, it's, it's great in the moment and hopefully can lead to stronger bonds um, in the future as well as we embark upon the next public health challenge that we will unfortunately face. As we think about shifting, you know, you've, you've spoken about kind of the approach to vaccinating adults and how, how might, you know, opportunities look similar or different we vaccinate children um, across across the neighborhood, across the city, um, and and also how to do that in an equitable way. Have you thought about that? And I know we're maybe not quite there yet, but as we look ahead, sort of a next step for us in, in, in pediatric care. Yeah, I think a lot of the principles apply for children as well. I think it's uh, trust, trust, trust. Uh, uh, and a convenience of site, convenience of location, convenience of access. So it, it's it's exactly the same. The, the only difference with a digital divide is that in kids, a lot of caregivers are younger, so they have uh, more access to online platforms and they're more comfortable scheduling. But I think if we really want equity, there's two things uh, I think we have to focus on. One is ease of access. So uh, vaccines should be, instead of schedules, should be walk-in like there are now. Now we have the supply, obviously initially was complicated, but allowing at least for a portion of the each site has some schedule, but walk-ins is very uh, important. When you're a parent and you've been struggling through this pandemic and maybe 
you lost your job and you finally have a job to have to lose a day to take your kids for vaccination is almost impossible. So we need to be open at all hours. We need to allow for parents who work uh, night shifts to be able to do the day, for those who work on the day to do the nights, to be able to be open weekends. Some of it can be scheduling, but some of it can be walk-in. The other thing that's important is to go to where the people are at. So if we really want to do vaccine equity, we know where the hotspots of COVID have been. And I checked this morning the New York City website for vaccines and the black population in our in our city, in New York City, is at 20, I think 28% of the population got vaccinated versus the white were above 50%. So we know where populations work. We have to be there. We have to be, again, in trusted places. We have to park ourselves in churches or in schools or in community centers that families feel comfortable going. I'm a big proponent of vaccine bans, depending on which, you know, unfortunately, it's going to be the Pfizer. So that's going to be approved for 12 to 17. And that requires refrigeration. But what is it that we can do if it's not a vaccine ban to be centrally located? Um, and then lastly, I think the issue of information and education is key. And it's where we are at now. Uh, we have supply. We don't need more pop-up sites. What we need is trying to get to those pockets that are more resistant. And with children, parents might be resistant because they see them as more fragile or not willing to try something new. So um, we are going to have to revise the slide deck and then um, start doing a massive education campaign. One thing that we're working on now that we're very excited is we're training youth ambassadors um, to be able to disseminate the message. So we have two programs, the Lang Youth Program, which is a pipeline program for middle and high school kids that have an interest in healthcare to help them go into college. And then we have a youth hub for children um, who are in the community to try to help them engage in education and in their future skills for their careers and for their lives. So we recruited five youth from Lang and from the youth ambassador. And actually we have medical students training the youth on how to engage uh, their peers. And we're asking them to each uh, youth ambassador to either talk to 10 kids, their peers, or to do a presentation uh, in a group of youth facing organizations or to create um, like others have done in our campus and elsewhere, videos or TikTok or any method that they feel comfortable talking to their youth about vaccine. It's a paid internship. And depending on how this works, we're going to extend it so then we can have peer-to-peer -peer education around COVID vaccine. And I think these are going to be very important efforts to try to convince the youth uh, and parents to get vaccinated. That sounds incredible. I mean, who better to to share the message than to hear from your peers um, as a teen? I think that's um, a very powerful and, and, and potent messaging strategy. Um, and I think you, you mean you're describing a lot of the things that are in the wheelhouse of pediatricians, talking about vaccines, talking about social terms of health, language literacy, expectation, um, and then and trust. And my last question to you is. As you take a step back and think from a population perspective, there's been some some chatter about whether um, vaccination should be mandatory for children, uh, particularly those um, you know going to, uh, to schools. And I just want to hear your thoughts on that from from your perspective on on um, on mandating vaccines for children. 
I'm obviously a big proponent of uh, mandating vaccine for children for all our immunizations, right? For, uh, for all our childhood Im immunizations. Um, with this one is a little tricky because it's a emergency use authorization. <laughs> it's not something that's been approved for the FDA, FDA for regular use. Uh, from a public health perspective, obviously, that's what we want. We want every single kid vaccinated as soon as Pfizer approves the 12 to 17 year olds. That what every single pediatrician should be doing all summer is trying to get every single kid vaccinated. But um, mandating it for school entry is a little complicated. Um, it poses some ethical questions and uh, how much can you push the population? So I don't have an answer to this. Uh, obviously, that I, I would like to do it, but I don't know how much we can push. Um, what we could do is that, you know, we'll see where we are with mass mandate indoors, but it could be like what how we handle the flu in the hospital settings, that for all employees, we are mandated to vaccinate against the flu. For all employees that refuse the vaccination, they have to watch a video. They have mm -hmm. to sign a, a form saying that they understand and they're doing an informed decision. And then they're mandated to use a mask throughout the flu season. And we might have to do the same with kids. They, they might, the parents might have to either watch a video or read something, sign that it's an informed decision. And their kids are the ones that are going to have to wear a mask. But I do not have a definitive answer. I'm I'm still struggling with the pros and the cons on that one. Yeah, I think the discussion and the debate is 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 ongoing for many of the reasons that you mentioned, particularly given the fact that um, children have certainly been affected in different ways than adults have from the vaccine, from the virus itself. Um, as you wrap up here, any tips or advice to pediatric providers out there who are looking to to uh, improve equity around vaccinations? Yeah, I think that we're all strapped for time. I think our uh, visits are very limited um, in, in what we can address. I think obviously with telehealth, it, it adds another barrier. But when possible, I think uh, asking every single family how they're doing, how did they fare during the pandemic? What are their thoughts about vaccines? Is there any information that you, one, can give them uh, would be important? And uh, I say this because we're the trusted messengers for a lot of our families. So if we say that we believe in the vaccine and that we got our vaccine or that we believe in PPE or whatever the message of the day is, uh, they're more likely to hear it from us than from any other person because we've known them for a long time and have a relationship with them. And families know that we have the kids' interest uh, at heart. So I think trying to make the space in our limited time constraint encounters to discuss and meet the patients where they're at, not to, the carrot is not to convince them at the end of the five minute discussion, but give them tools so they can make an informed decision. Well, Dodie, thanks so much for, for joining today, for sharing your wisdom. I'm always so impressed when I talk with you and, and you always leave me inspired to, to do better for for my patients that I care for um, here in the hospital setting, but also in the community and the broader city and the broader population. So thanks for the work that you're doing and, and spearheading um, on behalf of, of the children. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
Now we'll hear from some of our listeners about why they chose to get the COVID-19 vaccine. My name is Amanda and I got vaccinated because I'm a new mom. My husband and I work in higher risk settings and we wanted to do everything that we could to protect our little one. My name is Kais and I got vaccinated so that I could see my family, friends, and to also be a responsible citizen. My name's Erica and I got the vaccine so that we could reach herd immunity. My name is Steve and I got vaccinated for my community. Hi, my name is Jackie and I got vaccinated because I wanted to stay alive. Um, I believe in the science. Um, I did a little research on my own and I truly believe what the scientists are saying that one, the vaccine has been in works for a very long time. Um, and it's not something that happened overnight. I truly believe that um, by me being vaccinated, that I am saving lives around me, um, including um, my significant other, uh, my friends, my family. Um, and so that is the main reason why I choose to get vaccinated. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, hope you enjoyed the episode today. Please join us next time for our third part in this three-part series. We'll be talking about uh, the vaccine in children's mental complexity with Davila Connie.